This is Mental Maps, a podcast about navigating the mind. My name is Dr. Josh Waddell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, mental health counselor, and host of this show. The content of this show is focused on creating a better understanding about the mind and how you can achieve optimal well-being. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, I hope this finds you well, no matter what season that you're in. And I'm very excited about our episode today, we're, we're going to open up the concept of the gut flora and the gut microbiome. If you've listened to some of our other episodes, we've talked about this in a little bit more of a, a 10,000 foot level, but today we're really going to dive in and I have the awesome opportunity to have a true expert in this field, uh, Dr. Karan Krishnan. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Welcome. Welcome. So as we kind of jump into this, I know as a microbiologist, you've done a lot of different things. You've been in academia, you've been in business, you've been in R&D. How does someone make the decision of gut flora is my specialty? Like this is going to be my thing. How did that happen? Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a great question. I'm going to think about how my brain is designed, right? So what always excited me the most was the un- the world of the unknown, um, the things that you can't see, the things you can't touch, the things that influence virtually every aspect of your life, but they're, they're, you're, they're blind to you in many ways, right? So um, when I was even deciding what to study when I first got into um, college, for example, I was either going to go to the route of physics and work on quantum mechanics, which is another area that I really love because it's you know subatomic particles and it influences everything, but it's so mysterious, and it's truly the world of the unknown, uh, or microbiology, which is, again, this microscopic world that influences everything that you can't see, but you interact with every single day. And there's a lot of unknown in the world of microbiology. Uh, so I chose microbiology uh, for good reason. I think one of the main reasons was because I watched a movie about it, uh, <laughs> the movie Outbreak, uh, which, which oh, uh, yeah. you, know, you remember the old Morgan Freeman, Dustin Hoffman movie, right? Yes, yes. It was about a, a pan, uh, pandemic outbreak. And I was very excited about the idea of chasing viruses and figuring out, you know, cures for uh, for diseases. Once I got into the world of, of microbiology, I did all kinds of things in the world of microbiology, studying pathogens and looking at food safety and all these different things. Um, but what became really apparent to me is that, you know, when you look at the world of clinical microbiology and the research, there's a lot of focus on pathogens, right? Which, you know, for good reason in many ways, but pathogens make up like less than 1% of all the microbes known. Hmm. So I always had the question of what about the rest of it? You know, like, do we always just ignore the 99.9% of all other microbes and only focus on the very few that are direct pathogens. And and so that curiosity always kind of ate away at me as I was doing pathogen research, because I my two big research areas were HIV and um, E. coli, hmm. and infectious E. coli, right? So I had a virus and a, and, and a bacteria pathogen I was working on. Um, and so, but it always bugged me that we were ignoring all of these other microbes and what they may be doing. So lucky for me, the NIH kicked off this human microbiome project, which was really to, to explore our relationship with that other 99.9%, right? All of these crazy microbes that live in, on, and around us that seem to dictate how everything happens. So right away for me, I was like, whoa, that's exactly the window of opportunity that I've been looking for. So I jumped in, you know, headfirst into the microbiome space 
because number one, it services that that part of my personality that it's all about pioneering and going into the unknown, right? Which is a completely unknown space at the time. Uh, and then number two, it gave me a window to look into the other 99.9%. Um, so it was a perfect fit for me, um, you know, and I'm, I'm very uh, grateful that those decisions are made and, you know, I am what I'm, I'm I am doing now what I'm doing. So yeah. it's an exciting time. How interesting. Yeah. And, you know, before we jump into gut microbiome, as you jumped into this, and so you began to, to study the other 99%, looking back, what was probably the most shocking thing you found about gut microbiome and just all of these other 99%? Yeah. Um, a couple of things uh, I can point out. Number one, how complex it is, right? Yeah, There's so absolutely. much complexity to the ecosystem that's, that, that exists in us and on us and all around us as well. Um, so that's one. Number two is how much of our outcomes they dictate. Right? Mm. Um, we have probably severely underestimated the role of microbes, not only in our day-to-day -day outcomes, but our long-term outcomes, right? whether we're talking about health, whether we're talking about social outcomes, whether we're talking about even our perspective on the world, right? So almost everything that that is us is dictated in some way or the other by them. And, and then you start to understand that, wait a minute, they are us and it's all the same, right? We mm. are a, one of the cogs, we, the, the we that we identify, the human component mm. of this, right? We are just one of the cogs in this complex ecosystem that, that we're participating in. And so that realization is, is really mind boggling when you think about it, it because then you have to think like, a, like an ecosystem and you have to act like an ecosystem. You know, it's not a singular human anymore. We're a walking, talking rainforest. Uh. Right? And all the choices you make have to be good for the rainforest. And, and not just what I want. I feel like eating a cupcake. You know, I, I want to go have drinks, whatever my choices are those are my own little proclivities, but I need to figure out what I need to do for my ecosystem. Yeah. And if I don't, I have disease. Why did you, what do you think that we in science underestimated it? Like we didn't realize that we are just one big rainforest. You know, I, I think a lot of it is because of how science is designed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Science, at, at least the, the really high, what we consider to be the high level science. So we're talking about academic research. We're talking about, you know, um, allopathic medicine, which is, of course, the predominant uh, type of medicine out there. Mm -hmm. What we end up ev uh, eventually doing in all of these areas is siloing the body and siloing biological systems, right? So if you are uh, a cardiologist, you really, all you know is the heart. Right. You know, almost nothing about the brain, you know, nothing about, you know, the other systems in the body, the gut, the kidneys, the livers, the you know endocrine system. Mm -hmm. You become so specialized in the heart and even within cardiology, there's specializations that only look at one aspect of the heart. Mm -hmm. Right. And 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 most people who are, you know, really smart and want to really uh, advance in the world of science and medicine they become more and more and more specialized in one thing. Absolutely. And, you know, because it's harder to get into those, right? It's mm -hmm. harder to become a, uh, a a cardiologist than it is to become a family medicine doctor. And a family medicine doctor yeah. kind of looks at 
things a little bit with a little bit broader lens, right? Mm -hmm. um, it it takes a lot more academically and so on to get into those uh, specialties and get into those residences and all that. So the people who tend to accelerate in academics and so on, they actually become less uh, functional to me because they become so minutely focused on singular things. Now, the same thing happens in academic research, which is one of the things that bothered me about being in the world of academics and wanting to bridge the, the gap towards business is that uh, most professors and academic researchers spend their entire lives studying one thing, right? And it can be a very small thing. It can be a thing that it's a single enzyme or a single protein in a single cell for the next 30 years. They're just getting deeper and deeper yeah. and deeper into that one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Almost never utilizing that whatever they've discovered over that time in sort of in a in a systems way of improving people's health, right? Mm -hmm. Because the goal of academia in that at that level is to continue to do research, right? Mm -hmm. Your life, your work is based on grants, and and you you get grants and the res and the university that hires you. Um, you know, rewards you for being a, uh, a professor that gets big grants, right? Yeah. A lot of research. And so your whole goal is not to solve any problems, but it's to keep asking more questions. Hmm. Right? And the questions become more and more and more finite and minute. And so when you think about, you know, medicine is going that way, it's becoming more and more siloed. You know, people are focusing on just a singular system in the body. The top level academics are all going that way, right? Then what we start to do is we start to deconstruct the body into these non-connected parts. And not a lot of people are thinking about the system, the systems biology approach, right? And so when it comes to microbes, it's really all about the system. When it comes yeah. to an ecology, it's about the system, right? Ecosystems work as a system. That's why it's called an ecosystem. Um, and so it's completely um, against how the vast majority of top researchers, top medical professionals think. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's just completely counterintuitive. How interesting. So it's a, it's a system problem as well as I'm sure like managed care problem. I mean, it's just a problem across the board, academia problem, grant problem. And so now we've kind of found ourselves not understanding this really interesting environment that we have that as you said dictates everything and so if we're going to talk about that what is the gut microbiome for the average person like what i mean we see things on instagram and tiktok and, and everywhere it's, i mean it's so popular right now like what is this thing yeah so you know there's a gut microbiome there's a skin microbiome there's different microbiomes in your body so we can define the microbiome in its totality and then we can talk about the differences between the different microbiomes mm -hmm. right so the word microbiome really in, incorporates um, all of the uh, microorganisms and their genetic elements in relationship to the host, right? And we mm -hmm. happen to be the host. Um, and that second part is really important, the genetic elements part of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize that a little bit. Um, so overall, in our bodies and on our bodies, we have many different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. um, they can be very different from one another. They can house completely different types of microbes who do very different things. But ultimately, what we come to find out is all of these ecosystems talk to one another, and they have to talk to one another and work together to function as a human. 
Um, and if they don't talk to one another, if we start losing communication, for example, between the microbes in the gut and the microbes in the lungs or the microbes in the brain and the microbes in the gut, we start losing communication, we start seeing the formation of disease. And so we are a walking, talking rainforest. There's a new definition for a human. The, the word is called holobiont. A holobiont is a superorganism. Right? A superorganism is an organism that is made up of thousands of different species that all have to work together in order to perpetuate the health of the whole. Mm -hmm. right? And that's exactly what we are. We, we're no longer this defined human uh, with all these different organ systems connected by tissue and we're mechanical in that way and we have a brain that controls everything. You know, We have a completely different view on what it means to be human. So then each of the biomes, as I mentioned, so your gut microbiome has a different ecosystem than your skin microbiome, than your vaginal microbiome, uh, than your, you know, what's the biome in your brain and your eye and so on. So these are different ecosystems. All of them collectively are called the microbiome. Um, I mentioned, and I emphasize this genetic component of it, right? That is a really critical part. Um, and here's why that's so important. So when I was actually at university, one of the exciting research projects that were going on. And, and I was at University of Iowa, and one of the labs that, that we worked mm -hmm. with was part of the hum Human Genome Project, mm -hmm. right? So remember that in the, in the late 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Early 2000s. The idea behind the Human Genome Project was for the first time we had the technology to start sequencing out all the genes in, in, our, in our chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And the, the thinking was that everything was dictated by genes, right? So if you have heart disease, yes, there's a lifestyle component, but you likely have a heart disease gene as well. If you have diabetes, you probably have a diabetes gene. If you have an autoimmune condition, there's a gene for that. So the idea was sequence the entire human genome, figure out what all the genes do, and then identify all the disease genes as well, right? And then maybe there's some genotherapy that you can do to reduce the risk for these disease conditions. Hmm. And so... And, and the estimates, the early estimates were that when we sequence the human genome, because of how complex we are as, um, as organisms, right, um, we would likely have somewhere around 200,000 genes. So then they go through this whole arduous process of, of sequencing the human genome. As it turns out, we have about 22,000 functional genes. Most oh. of the genes, most of the, the base pairs in our DNA are just nonsense information, right? It, they don't code for anything. So we have 22,000 genes, about a 10th of what was estimated, yeah. right? And, and for those that are not familiar with genetics, that still sounds like a lot, but consider that an earthworm has about the same amount of genes <laughs> as we do, right? <laughs> so we're not even yeah. as sophisticated as an earthworm is. And so then the big question came about is like, holy crap, how do we do all the things we do yeah. Well, we don't have the genetics to do it. That actually was part of the impetus that kicked off the Human Microbiome Project because the guess was, well, maybe there are microbes housing some genes that we utilize. As it turns out, there are about two and a half million genes in our microbiome, many of which we actually utilize. So the vast majority of genetic material that we utilize to make proteins and so on to function as a human actually come from the microbes. So huh. that's our big data bank, our big gene pool that offers us capabilities, right? Yeah. So that's the really, really important part of it because 
our microbes, our microbiome, all the microbes that live in and on us, offer us capability and functionality to be human. If tomorrow all your microbes are gone and all their genetic elements are gone, you probably wouldn't function for much more than a few days. Turn because, into an earthworm. Yeah, exactly. We would literally turn into an earthworm. Yes. <laughs> We'd start burrowing into the dirt and just laying there, right? Because <laughs> we can't do a whole lot on our own. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's really fascinating to think about it that way. Um, you know, we tend to have a certain hubris about us as, as humans because we're at the top of the evolutionary ladder and top of the food chain. We don't consider these simplistic microbes, um, you know, as, as being equivalent, but they actually run the show. So we have these ecosystems, really. So our, our body is just made up of all of these ecosystems. These ecosystems talk with one another. They house this genetic coding. And then the genetic coding allows you really to be a human, to be who you are. So within these ecosystems, how do we fill them up? Like, how do we obtain this bacteria and this, you know, this biome, if you will, to fill up these ecosystems to work the way that we work? Yeah. So the most natural way in which we're we're supposed to obtain them is uh, number one through the birthing process. So even in utero, when you're when you're um, you know a, a baby sitting in your in your mom's womb. Um, the immune mom's immune system will actually grab bacteria from her gut and bring it to amniotic fluid and so on, right? So you're getting inoculated from mom's gut, which is, when you think about it, it's mind-boggling. Our immune yeah. system's job is to kill microbes, right, and act as a defense mechanism. And yet we have such an intimate relationship there where they can actually carry and shuttle beneficial microbes to the baby and inoculate the baby with it. Um, so that's step one. And then after that, the birthing process itself. So going through the vaginal canal is a very important process of getting inoculated with lots of good bacteria from mom. Um, oftentimes, you know, when women are giving birth, they're also defecating. Um, so the baby comes into contact with some fecal matter early on. Uh, those are bifidobacteria and other important bacteria that the baby uh, gets inoculated with. Um, and then just post-birth, uh, breast milk contains you know, upwards of 600 different species of bacteria. So that's a really important source of microbes as well. Uh, and then early skin to skin contact and close contact with mom and dad, and actually any other family members. Um, that's when we start picking up a lot of our microbes. However, our microbiome is still not set set, uh, you know, all, all the way upwards of to the age of seven. Um, so up to that point, we have lots of opportunity for gaining lots more exposure to microbes because ultimately what we want in terms of health is a high diversity in our microbiome, right? So 15 years of microbiome research that keeps showing up everywhere that the higher the diversity in the gut microbiome, especially the longer we live, the healthier we are, the more resistant we are to the disease and so on. Um, so we need high diversity, which means we need high amounts of exposure. And so you think about a baby, right? Uh, what's so fascinating to me about a human baby, and again, this only makes sense if you look at it from the perspective of the microbiome. When you think about a human baby, what is the tendency of every human baby, right? They sample the world with their mouth, yeah, right? Which is a very unusual thing for a human because that's not our primary sensory organ, right? Yeah, exactly. As we age and we're trying and we're investigating new things, we're tactile, we touch things, right? We see, we're visual, we smell things. We don't 
put like if I saw something unique and new, I don't pick it up and go, mm, oh, let me see what let me see what this is and put it in my mouth, yeah. right? But babies sample everything with their mouth, right? Including their own feet, everything they touch and pick up. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, our ancestral babies are born, they're put in the dirt, right? So they pick up rocks and you know, dried dung and all kinds of things and put it in their mouth because they're sampling the environment to get, gain maximum exposure to microbes, right? That's the only reason you would do that. Um, and so you grow out of it after a certain age because you're done sampling and you're done trying to expose yourself to microbes. Um, so the environment also becomes a very important source, right? So then we start thinking about, okay, all those natural sources and we look at modern lifestyle, number one, you know, we're being born, we're, we're, we're giving birth in these sterile rooms, right? 33% or so births are C-section. So they're not coming out of the vaginal canal, they're coming straight out, uh, uh, you know, through the bowel area. And, and those babies are not getting that initial exposure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so then you start looking at data, is there an impact on those babies if they're not born through the vaginal canal? Mm -hmm. And absolutely the data is clear that if you're a C-section baby, your risk factors for obesity, diabetes, um, allergies, asthma, all kinds of conditions that go, go way up, right? Huh. So we know that now. We know missing early inoculations creates dysfunction in these individuals. We also know that on average, before the age of two, American babies go through at least four rounds of antibiotics, right? Oh, wow. And, and which is mind-boggling when you think about it. And so that has a huge impact on early development of the microbiome. We also know that our babies are mostly in sterile environments, right? In our houses. Yeah. They're not outside putting dirt in their mouth. They're not outside putting rocks in their mouth. Um, and, and so that has a big impact as well. We also know, and I saw this with a lot of my friends and so on, when a baby's born and you go to see the baby, everyone wants you to use hand sanitizer and clean up and all that, right? We're so scared. We want to be sterile yeah. around the babies. And so we're not sharing microbes in the same way yeah. that we normally would um and then a lot of moms aren't able to or choose not to breastfeed right it's it's a it's a difficult thing it's not the easiest thing in the world yeah. in modern life which i get uh and so you're missing a huge inoculum if you're not breastfeeding for yeah. upwards of a year so you know we're doing all these practices that we didn't realize even seven eight years ago had huge detrimental effects for the long term, because we're negating the exposure that we need to microbes, right? So, so that's how we normally get them, uh, get the microbes, the microbiome. That's how we develop it. And then over the years, the people you interact with, the places you go, all of those things, you start picking up microbes. And then what you're supposed to do is have a very diverse diet. Our ancestors ate upwards of 600 different types of foods annually. They hunted, they gathered, they foraged, right? They did everything. Um, and, and so they ate a huge variety of foods and the more variety of foods you eat, the more variety of microbes you feed. So it increases your diversity within the gut microbiome. That's also something we don't do anymore. Yeah. You know, we, we don't eat a diverse diet at all. Most people, most Westerners eat maybe 15 different types of foods, you know, uh, like, yeah, I'm bad about that. Like I'll eat like the same things over and over. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there's things you like yeah. and it's convenient and it's easy. Yeah. You know, and, and it's healthy for the most part, like, right? You yeah. know, you, you're you're a health conscious individual. So you'll pick those 15 things, but they're healthy things. But but what we don't realize is that, you know, we're not feeding the diversity of our ecosystem. We are 
a, a rainforest in shambles if we don't do that, right? Yeah. Because we need to feed that system uh, a high diversity. So, so it's as you can see, it's so easy for things to yeah. go awry in in this natural system because of modern life, right? And and so it's not surprising that virtually every chronic illness is on the rise, you know, both in kids, in middle-aged people, in adults, uh, you know, even aging-related diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, all on the rise. Cancers continue to be on the rise. You know, allergies in kids is an epidemic, yeah. right? Uh, spectrum disorders, all of these things continue to be on the rise despite billions of dollars pouring into research and, mm. you know, all of these therapeutics and so on. And it's all because we're missing the core issue, which is what are we doing to our microbes? Yeah. And what I hear in this too, is just this intricate relationship between human and nature and mm -hmm. being in nature. Like my great grandmother would say, I told you so, because she would be that yeah. person who would say like, get in the dirt. You're not dirty enough. You got to get dirtier. And, and when you're without that, you know, especially you're growing up in a concrete jungle or you're not around the dirt as much as you need to, your foods are different, you know, are very, very um, as you were saying, specialize in your food, then you're missing out on a lot of these things. And so you mentioned like spectrum disorders and things like things like that. And I've seen this as well. What, how is the gut microbiome impacting your brain in itself? Mm -hmm. Like how, what is occurring there? Yeah. So um, there's something called the gut brain axis, right? Which, yeah. which talks about how the gut and the brain are connected. Um, I would actually take it a step further as we dig more into this and more research comes out. What becomes extremely clear is the gut and the brain are actually two parts of the same system. So they're, they're, they are the same system. They're intimately connected. So you've got your brain sitting there in your cranium, and then your gut is down here in, your, in the midsection of your body. Um, they're connected through a number of mechanisms directly. So one of the mechanisms is through the neurological system, right? So your gut is wrapped with this really complex neurological system called the enteric nervous system. The enteric nervous system is a very complex neurological system, even more complex and has more nerve endings than your spinal cord. Mm. Uh, it's And a lot of people call it the second brain. It's, yeah. To me, it's really kind of the other brain because there's no genuine way of ranking yeah. one over the other, right? Um, and so, so your enteric nervous system wraps your entire digestive tract and the microbes in your digestive tract all have full access to it and influence it in a major way. That enteric nervous system is connected directly to the brain through the vagus nerve. So that's one of the connections. But then there's also the, um, the lymphatic system. So the immune cells and all of the things that can travel with immune cells that are connected from the, from the gut to the brain. And keep in mind that the gut houses about 75, 80% of all the immune tissue in your body. Right. So everything that happens immunologically in your body is heavily influenced by what happens in the gut. And your brain, of course, has its own immune system as well, which is influenced by the gut. And then, of course, you have circulation through the blood system. Right. So you've got blood going to the brain, blood going to the gut. Lots of things are made in the gut that are sent into the circulatory system that make their way up to the brain. So what we're coming to find out now is that the gut and the brain have this very intimate two way communication and and the brain needs lots of things from the gut and the gut needs lots of things from the brain as well right they they because again they're two parts of the same exact system and in fact when you look at us embryonically the gut and the brain develop from the same polar region and the same tissues in huh. the embryo 
right? Yeah. It's super interesting when you when you yeah. really think about it. And the gut line and the brain lining, the blood brain barrier, right, which yeah. most people have heard of, is very very similar physiologically to the gut lining. They function huh. very same, very similar. And if you have leaky gut, you more than likely have leaky brain. There's good there's evidence for that, right? So um, it's it's and every neurotransmitter. Everyone people have heard of neurotransmitters. They affect how your brain functions, right? Um, every neurotransmitter that you see in the central nervous system and in the brain is also found in the gut and made and controlled in the gut, mm -hmm. right? So these hormones and neurotransmitters and all those things that impact your brain and, and how you think and how you see the world and how well you sleep and whether or not you're anxious or if you have depression, your, your memory recall capability, you know, your IQ, in many ways, all of these things are also impacted by the things that are happening in the gut. And so one of the biggest, you know, uh, issues with psychiatric medicine, for example, uh, and, and one of the reasons why psychiatric medicine has not been very successful, if you really think about it, right? Because um, you think about our ability to deal with things like anxiety, depression, um, you know, cognitive dis dissonance and so on, um, it's really poor, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even after years of research and all that, it's mm -hmm. really poor. The, in, in the world of psychiat psychiatric medicine, they've been using the same medications mm -hmm. for like 60 years, right? right? The same anti-anxiety meds, the same SSRIs, uh, and it's just different brand names, different flavors of each mm -hmm. in, in some way or the other. And people never really get better. Now, some docs are, okay, are pretty good at managing their patient to some degree where you can be functional, but you're not fine, right? You're not better. And, and when you think about the vast majority of people, not the people on medication, not the people who are on the ends of the spectrum who are so severely depressed or so severely anxious they can't leave their house, we're talking about just an average person walking down the street. The average person walking down the street is experiencing anxiety multiple times a week, mm -hmm. right? And, and likely experiencing some degree of sleeplessness and, and deals with bouts of depression from time to time right? Mm -hmm. It's not enough where they go and seek medical help. Most of these individuals are self-medicating, right? They do things from, you know, downloading apps to try to do meditation and they, they try to make lifestyle changes all the way to recreational drugs and drinking during the day and, you know, like medicating in different ways. Some of them medicate with food, right? There's all these dopaminergic substances that we, we have access to that can increase dopamine in your body, which actually alleviates some of the anxiousness, mm -hmm. alleviates some of the depression, alleviates some of the mood disorders that we start to, to, to start to get addicted to and start to, uh, you know, latch onto, whether it's, you know, binge watching movies, uh, you know, sex addiction, food addiction, alcohol addiction, the reason all these things are so prevalent is because we've completely missed the gut-brain axis. Mm. You know? uh, and, and I'll say one more thing about that is one of the things I try to teach, and, and I especially when I'm doing lectures to, to medical professionals, is that the, the gut-brain axis is really important to think about. But one of the angles that we miss is that, of course, the gut and the brain support one another. They need each other, right? But if your gut is dysfunctional, not only is it not supporting the brain, it actually becomes the most toxic thing for your brain, even more toxic than other things you can do like bad habits, right? Mm -hmm. um, a dysfunctional gut 
is arguably the most toxic thing to your brain. So the micro. How is that? Like, what do you see with that as, as it gets more toxic? Like, because, yeah. you know, because we think a lot about, you know, I see so many people who come in and they're very anxious. And so now they're very nauseous and upset stomach. Or they have constipation and diarrhea and those things. Yeah. And so for you, you're seeing also that when the brain becomes unwell, you yeah. also see the gut become unwell. And because they're so closely connected, because they came from the same tissue in the embryo, now it begins to almost attack the brain. What do you, how does that happen? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so here's what's happening when your gut is unwell, right? Um, people have heard of leaky gut. Mm-hmm. Your gut becomes leaky when you, when you don't have the right microbes that are protecting and, and rebuilding the barrier and all that. Your gut actually becomes leaky, which, which means that things that um, aren't supposed to leak through the lining of the intestines and enter into circulation are leaking through and going through into circulation. The most problematic thing that does that is something called LPS, lipopolysaccharide. Mm-hmm. It's endotoxin, right? And there's a that, that's a very special term, endotoxin. It means a toxin that's created internally in your body, mm-hmm. right? So co- compare that to an exotoxin, which is a toxin from the outside. So that's something you can get away from, right? Let's say you live in a house and it's moldy and there's mold toxins everywhere. You go, oh my God, that's that's really destroying my health. You can move away from mm-hmm. that location. An endotoxin is a toxin that's made in the gut by the microbiome. And almost everybody has about 50% of the microbes that make a endotoxin called LPS. Now, what's supposed to happen is the LPS stays in the lumen of the gut, which is where the microbiome lives mm-hmm. in that mucosa layer, right? And if your gut is not leaky, it stays there, it gets neutralized eventually, and it moves out through defecation, it's not a problem. But if your gut is leaky and you have wrong microbes, they produce high amounts of endotoxin, they make your gut leaky, they create inflammation in the gut, then those endotoxins end up leaking through and they end up in circulation. Now, what a lot of studies have shown is high levels of these endotoxins, LPS, lipopolysaccharide, are the biggest determining factor in lots of neurological and brain-related conditions. So we'll take this the simplest ones first, anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of studies show that elevated levels of endotoxin in your blood are the number one predictor for the presence of anxiety. And also the amount of endotoxin will predict how severe your anxiety is. Now, at the same time, if your gut is leaky, you're also going to be getting GI symptomology, right? So that's why it goes hand in hand. Um, Now, how does that happen? How does this endotoxin create anxiety, right? There's a number of mechanisms. Number one is this toxin can actually um, inhibit the function of serotonin and dopamine receptors in the brain. So it actually lodges itself in the receptor. So now you can't bind serotonin, which is your happy hormone. You can't bind dopamine, which is which triggers the reward centers of the brain. You can't feel happy, even though you may be making those hormones inadequate level, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one mechanism. The second mechanism is they cause inflammation in the brain. And inflammation in the brain is associated with triggering the HPA axis, Mm-hmm. which is the hypothalamic and pituitary adrenal axis, which puts you in a fight or flight response, mm-hmm. right? So, so you're constantly, because your brain is constantly inflamed, this stuff is leaking through, elevated levels in your circulation means it's making it to the brain, your brain is inflamed, you're constantly in this fight or flight response, and you're also negating the function of dopamine and serotonin in the brain. So that leads to anxiety, right? So now when you have a certain amount of anxiety for a period of time, 
what tends to settle in is a sense of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Depression is defined as having a sense of hopelessness, right? So then the next thing that follows is depression. And so also because your brain is inflamed, you're damaging neurological tissue. And the neurological tissue damage leads to things like memory recall issues and slower cognition. And because you're in a flight or fight response all the time, you can't sleep. Because when your HPA axis is triggered, you're in the opposite neurological pattern for sleep. So when you're in your fight or flight response, your sympathetic nervous system is activated, right? You're always on guard. You're looking to fight or flee from whatever danger is there. When reality, there's no danger there. Mm -hmm. um, to sleep and to digest and to rebuild and recover, you have to be in the parasympathetic neurological system. Right. So you can't do those things. So you're not repairing the damage that's occurring throughout the day. You're not digesting the food and assimilating the nutrients properly. Right. You cannot rest. You cannot sleep all because you're not in the parasympathetic. Your your inflammation is keeping you in the sympathetic state. So you're constantly in fight or flight response. Your brain's constantly inflamed. You're constantly uh, trying to make more dopamine and serotonin. So in order for you to try to overcome that, you do dop dopaminergic substances, right? Mm -hmm. Food, alcohol, drugs, all of those things. And, and most people are in this state to a certain degree day to day, wow. you know, which, is, which is just yeah. mind boggling. Now, here's what's scary about it, right? What we experience today as anxiety is actually pre-Alzheimer's and pre-Parkinson's, right? Because the pathologies that create anxiety, that inflammation I talked about, and the presence of this endotoxin in the brain is exactly the same thing that creates Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's down the road. Huh. Uh, you know, when does it shift, right? When yeah. does it go yeah. from this being anxiety to Alzheimer's? Yeah. The shift occurs when there's so much net damage to the brain tissue that now the net damage is creating these neurodegenerative like symptomology, right? Oh, yeah. Because remember, I also mentioned when you're in this fight or fight response all day long, you can't repair because in order to repair, you have to be able to sleep and you have to be able to be in the parasympathetic state. Yeah. So what's supposed to happen is inevitably you're going to get some damage to your neurological system, your brain and so on throughout the day. That's just being human. But if you're healthy and you're able to sleep and turn on your parasympathetic system, what happens is your gut microbes, if you have good gut microbes, produce something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, right? That means when you sleep, your gut microbes are inducing a repair mechanism of your brain so that you don't have a net damage to your brain from day to day, right? If your gut is messed up, it's making your brain inflamed. It's, it's producing this endotoxemia where you have these endotoxins. At the same time, it's also not producing the BDNF at night, so you're not repairing the brain adequately, right? So over time, you end up with a net damage to a point where you start seeing these symptomologies that we call dementia, we call Alzheimer's, and so on. That is that is incredible. So so what I'm hearing in this is that these these two organs that are so closely interconnected, when this gut becomes unwell and you get these endotoxins and the endotoxins begin to damage these serotonin receptors, not only in your gut, but then they travel up, they go through the blood brain barrier because they can get through the blood brain barrier. Now they're damaging the neurotransmitters in your, in just overall in your cerebral cortex. And then in the other areas of the brain as well. And so then you find that, Oh, I'm using an SSRI or I'm using SNRI and I can't get any effect. It's because it's lodging itself from even allowing that modulation to occur. And then 
as this progresses over time, you begin to create lesions and you begin to have this decline in the brain, which ultimately leads to these terrible, terrible illnesses that just debilitate so many people because of the chronic anxiety, the chronic depression. How, how do you feel like cortisol relates into this? I know that's a hot topic in a lot of places. Do you find that these high elevations in cortisol within the chronic stress from the endotoxins also plays a part within the inflammation? Yeah, cortisol is at the linchpin yeah. of this, right? Yeah. Um, so so here's what's so interesting about it and, and why the gut-brain access becomes really important. Now, it, it's it's perfectly normal if your HPA axis is triggered for cortisol to start elevating, right? Mm -hmm. That's And cortisol plays a couple of really important roles. Initially, it plays a role in helping you with the fight-or-flight response, but then cortisol actually turns out to also be the key off switch for the whole system right hmm. so here's what's supposed to happen you you see a you experience a stressor right that that puts starts to put you into hpa activation and flight or fight response as that's happening of course your adrenals are producing cortisol so your cortisol levels keep going up and up and up and then cortisol actually dumps into the gut there's a couple of reasons why cortisol dumps into the gut one is there's some microbes in the gut that metabolize cortisol and the, the metabolic byproducts of cortisol uh, go to the kidneys and increase the opening of, of sodium-potassium pumps to cause the kidneys to put more um, sodium and potassium into circulation to increase the amount of water going into circulation so that it increases your blood pressure, right? Yeah. Because what your body's trying to do is increase perfusion during a fight or flight response. In particular, try to get more blood to your brain and your heart and your muscles, right? And so blood pressure goes up to try to drive more circulation. And so this is why stress over time causes hypertension, mm -hmm. right? And so part of cortisol gets metabolized to do that. The other part of the cortisol that dumps into your gut starts binding glucocorticoid receptors and when there are enough glucocorticoid receptors bound, they start sending the negative feedback signal that says, okay, let's shut this whole sympathetic HPA activation down, right? Yeah. That's the off switch for everything. So cortisol has this negative feedback loop that's yeah. very common in the body and many other systems. So cortisol is important that way. Now, here's what is the key. What, as it turns out, if you have an unhealthy gut, and especially if you're missing certain types of bacteria in your gut. When cortisol dumps into the gut, it also makes your gut extremely leaky, acutely, right? You get this massive transient leakiness in the gut. When you get this massive transient leakiness in the gut, there are a couple of biomarkers that increase dramatically pretty quickly. One of them is called IL-6, interleukin-6. Mm -hmm. When IL-6 goes up dramatically, IL-6 has the capability of re-triggering the HPA axis. Right. So that means that cortisol dumps into the gut. It makes your gut leaky. IL-6 goes up. IL-6 re-triggers your HPA axis, causing more cortisol yeah. to be released. Right. And the yeah. cycle keeps going on and on and on. And so and then the other two things that that IL-6 does is it reduces the number of glucocorticoid receptors that are being expressed, which means that cortisol can't bind enough of them to turn the system off. Right. So now your off switch is compromised. You're in the cycle of continuous HPA reactivation. And, and then at night, IL-6 also negates the release of BDNF. So you can't repair the problem. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's so interesting about it. We've discovered a microbe in the gut 
that stops all of this, right? The, this is a, um, a keystone species, a bifidolongum species that makes a compound called um, uh, exopolysaccharide and peptidoglycan. So this is a very unique uh, version of this bacteria that makes these re really unique carbohydrates that you see on the outer layer of the bacterial membrane, right? And as it turns out, it is these carbohydrates that the bacteria make that actually stop cortisol from making your gut leaky. And it dramatically reduces the inflammatory response that cortisol, HPA activation and all has in the body, right? So, mm -hmm. And it allows your body to go through the cortisol cycle, but then turn on the off switch and come down from it all. Yeah. Right. So this is a critical, critical component to all of it. And as it turns out, this microbe and and the and its byproducts are also critically important in utero when your brain was developing. Yeah. You know, so it has this very intimate relationship with the brain because, uh, as it turns out, the placenta has receptors and carriers for bacterial peptidoglycan, and it, and then the baby's brain has receptors for bacterial uh, peptidoglycan. And when the baby binds mom's gut bacteria's peptidoglycan, what it does is it initiates synaptogenesis. So it creates all the synaptic regions. It, it initiates the formation of the blood-brain barrier. It initiates cellular differentiation in the brain. So you can de develop the different areas of the brain. Uh, it, it initiates the development of the brain stem itself. So arguably some of the most important things we want to happen to the baby's brain in utero are triggered by a bacterial byproduct, right? We don't trigger that by any yeah. other mechanism. We need bacteria to do that for yeah. us. And that same compound is a key thing to maintaining the inflammation and, and, and allowing proper HPA ac activation and proper decline of HPA activation as well. That is so wild. So right? it's as if like the gut itself not only modulates, manages, is the supporter and the dictator of the brain at times, but it also cleans it up. It yeah. does all of these things to support it throughout the day and then through at night. It gives it all the things that it needs to heal itself and to create new neural connections with the BDNF. And when that gut is messed up, not only can it damage it, but then it breaks this feedback cycle where mm -hmm. it not only doesn't clean it up, but it just keeps damaging it from not cleaning it up. Exactly and so it's right. just this constant feedback. So that yep. if, if we have this going on in the gut, we know it's impacting our brain. We're seeing the increase in anxiety and depression. And, and we know these, these human emotions are getting so exacerbated that you're forming these pathological illnesses. Mm -hmm. What's go, How can we improve our gut? Like what happens with this? Are we all just kind of walking around and doomed to at some point have this? Like how do we fix our gut? Yeah. So, and this is the best part about all of this, right? Because everything we're talking about is an ecological problem. It's not a fixed genetic issue, right? Where we can't really change our genes. Uh, it's an ecological problem. No different than if you had a garden outside and you didn't tend to it well, and now there's weeds growing in there, you know what you, that you can do to get in there and fix that ecosystem, right? Yeah. So that's the beauty of this is that if we can fix the ecosystem in the gut, we can make dramatic changes in not only our existing health, but of course our long-term outcomes as well. So it goes back to some very simple things. It goes back to um, number one is reducing exposure to things that have a negative impact on your gut microbiome, right? So okay. examples of that, um, very simple things like things we would never think about is, is regular tap water. 
right? Regular tap water has a certain amount of chlorine and fluoride in it. Chlorine and fluoride are both antimicrobial in the in the gut. And so filtering your water and having good filtered water can make a big difference, right? Um, number two, household cleaners. So studies are very clear that homes and, and environments that are that are ultra sterile tend to reduce people's diversity in their microbiome and hurt their microbiome in a negative way. Mm. Um, you know, this there was this really great study um, uh, on um, on this Finnish allergy study. So in Finland, right? Um, basically, what they were trying to figure out is like this massive epidemic of allergies among kids. You know, environmental allergies, peanut allergies, all these things that are going on that that are really difficult to manage early mm. on with kids uh, because there's not a lot of medications that the mm. kids start to take. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, massive quality of life issue, right? So, uh, but, you know, the area in Finland uh, where they were looking at this, there's, there's an area not too far away in Russia that is geographically very similar uh, in terms of longitude, latitude and so on. Uh, and, and the cases of allergies in that part of Russia are really low. And so they did this big study, Finland did this big study, this uh, government sponsored study to look at the comparisons and figure out why is it that these people here have very little allergies and these people here in Finland have really booming allergies. And so basically they figured out is that in Russia, they don't sterilize the homes. The doors and windows are open a lot more throughout the day. They have a much more diverse microbiome in the homes itself compared to Finland where they're sterilizing everything. And we all have this programming that this, you know, fake lemon, you know, chemical smell <laughs> means clean, right? Yeah. Uh, we've been programmed that way, yeah. right? And so, Absolutely. yeah. And so they do that in Finland too. And so they realize that, holy crap, it's just because we're over sterilizing our homes and our schools and all those systems, right? And then here's a really cool part about the study. They took it one step further. They said, okay, if over sterilization causes this issue of compromised microbiome and, and then you start to get immune dysfunctions like allergies, asthma, and all that, let's do a study where we take uh, a bunch of daycare centers and kindergartens uh, and, and create dirt piles in them, right? And then we have a bunch that don't have dirt piles. And so then what they started doing is having kids in the, in the schools that have dirt piles play in the dirt piles three or four times a week. And, and then comparing them to the outcomes of kids who didn't go to school, the school with the dirt pile. And they're seeing a big difference in their in the level of allergies, asthma, immune dysfunctions, and so on in the schools with the kids with the dirt pile. Wow. Right. So it's just such a simple thing. Yeah. Right? So 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 that's you know something again. Yeah. Most surfaces in my home, we don't use any sort of cleaner on it, you know, like um we I just use a spray bottle. We might put one or two drops of some essential oil just for a little bit of fragrance, but that's how most surfaces are clean. Mm -hmm. Your toilet, if you want to use a, a, a sterilizing cleaner, fine. Uh, you know, your shower, if you're growing mold and mildew in there and you want to reduce mold and mildew mm -hmm. from time to time, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of surfaces do not have to be sterilized. Um, getting a dog into your house actually has a yeah. huge impact, right? There's some studies on this showing that households with dogs actually have kids with lower incidence of allergies, asthma, uh, viral infections and so on because dogs go outside they bring loads of microbes into the house mm -hmm. and, and it's really good for the household right um other things like diet we talked about this earlier mm -hmm. like trying to diversify your diet can have a huge impact on your overall mm -hmm. outcomes right and i i tell people like the simplistic way to do that and you know not everybody's a chef and can get really creative on how uh, diverse their diet is 
is go to like a local ethnic grocery store. Like we have a Middle Eastern store near me. We have a huge, you know, um, uh, you know, Chinese or Korean market mm. here. If you go to these stores, you'll find like roots and tubers and vegetables or fruits and things like that. Maybe even meats that you don't find at your local grocery store, right? right? And I say just incorporate one of those a week into one meal. Great right? so just go there and buy like a, a, a unique bok choy a version that you don't see in your normal grocery store. Just chop it up, stir fry it or steam it or just add it to whatever di normal dish you're eating. And if you maintain those those foods in there, by the end of the year, you would have added 30, 40. New, new oh, wow. Into yeah. Your diet, right. Simple yeah. thing can be kind of fun, can be adventurous. Mm -hmm. You know, go buy a star fruit. Most people have never eaten a star fruit and they have them all over the uh ancient grocery uh, the yeah. asian grocery stores and all that you know and there's so many of those kind of roots tubers yeah. and all that you don't see at yours um so that's another uh thing we need to be doing uh also uh we need to spend more time in a prescriptive way outside mm -hmm. you know and the studies are clear like like you said your grandma's uh you know absolutely right about spending time in nature and in the dirt and mm -hmm. and i would be very prescriptive about it you know prescribe yourself three times a week 30 minutes at a time being outside and being in nature and i'm and i don't mean necessarily your front yard you know i mean more like kind of untouched natural environments right go for a hike uh if you're in the coast go to the beach or mm -hmm. and, you know, immerse your feet in there and so on. Uh, one of the things I tell people, if you're going on a hike to bring something to eat with you, uh, whether it's an apple or banana or a sandwich, because this actually changes the experience, right? Because when you go out, go out on a hike, I want you to touch things, right? I want you to touch trees and rocks and pick mm -hmm. up sticks and so on, uh, and then sit down and grab something and eat it. And that's the most natural, fundamental way in which we interact with our environment is we eat food within the environment and that incorporates a bunch of microbes into our system, right? Um, so that's a critical thing. And then fortunately, we have probiotics and in, in, you know, some of those and prebiotics and these kind of therapeutics that can really move the needle for people, you know, but you, you don't want to just count on the supplementation. You really want to start adding in these other lifestyle factors mm -hmm. as well, right? Because again, we have to think like a rainforest, right? We just yeah. think for us, because uh, we are part of this ecosystem. We have to think for the ecosystem. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you can gain these from the natural world. You can go out and obtain this, open your windows, get outside, you know, eat some different foods that you not ate before, do those things. But then you have these probiotics. And I know probiotics are such a hot topic. I mean, yeah. you go to any health food store and it seems like there's 40 of them. There's some in a refrigerator. There's some there aren't in a refrigerator. Like for the person who is wanting to go that route with a probiotic as they're trying to rebuild their gut health, whether they're already experiencing leaky gut, anxiety, depression, or they're trying to prevent it, what can they do? I mean, how do you navigate that from a microbiome standpoint of what your ecosystem really needs? Or do we need all of it? Yeah, really. you, you actually, yeah, and you don't, you know, there, there are certain critical bacteria we found that can play a very significant role in, in your gut outcomes. And, and the most effective probiotics are going to be the ones that can change things within your microbiome itself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because if you think about it, even if you're taking a probiotic with like 100 billion CFUs, it sounds like a high dose, but you're putting it into an ocean with 40 trillion bacteria, right? So it's a, it's a tiny, tiny, minuscule amount compared to the overall ecosystem. Mm -hmm. 
So unless that probiotic has the capability of moving those 40 trillion bacteria or shifting them in some way, the, 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 the effects won't really be realized in any significant way. And, and one of the big problems I had, and part of the reason why I even got into the probiotic industry is I started to see all of the issues with how probiotics are made, formulated and so on. And keep in mind that the vast majority of probiotic brands out there, especially that dominate the shelves and all that, were created before we knew anything about the microbiome, mm -hmm. right? So they were created in a vacuum of information. Um, you know, we only started to learn all these things we're talking about today with about the microbiome in the last like seven years, seven, wow. eight years, right? Uh, if there's been a brand that's been around for 10 years and they have the same formula, it means it was formulated prior to the era of the microbiome, wow. right? Which means that they're ages behind on the science, right? And so, and, and, and most brands kind of followed the same logic of more is better. Let's get more strains in there, higher CFU counts, just this hodgepodge of different bacteria, you know, and, and just throw it in every day. Mm -hmm. and, and all those bacteria are gonna somehow survive and make an impact on the mm -hmm. microbiome and so on when we come to find out that the vast majority of probiotics in the market are complete nonsense, right? They, mm. they don't do anything. They're just dying, going through the gastric system. You're pooping out a bunch of dead bacteria. And the saddest part about that is that, you know, there's two sad parts about that. Number one, people are wasting their money, right? These are hard earned dollars, mm -hmm. you know, disposable income that people, uh, you know, are spending. And then the second part about it is probiotics if done correctly can be extremely powerful and we're missing the boat if we're using these kind of what I call kitchen sink nonsensical formulations. So when we started thinking about probiotics, we said, okay, number one, what is nature's probiotic, right? What kind of microbes are we supposed to encounter if we lived the way our, the way humans have been living for 99.9% .9 of the time of human evolution? Um, and, and what do these microbes do in the system that are so important that, that we could call them a probiotic? So the vast majority of our exposure to microbes after we're born are in the environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so environmental bacteria play a huge role in your outcomes. Mm -hmm. However, very few bacteria in the environment can actually act as a probiotic because, mm -hmm. again, most of them also die going through the stomach. Yeah. And if they don't make it past the stomach, they're not a probiotic, right? That, mm. that, that There's a scientific definition for a probiotic that is a live microorganism. If they don't make it past the stomach, then they are at best a, um, a metabolic response modifier uh, or a postbiotic is what they're considered to be. How does that work with like things, you know, when you're talking about like proton pump inhibitors and other drugs that you're using, will they kill these bacteria even though they're making it through? Um, so some things that will kill the bacteria are going to be anything that's antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. um, there's some evidence that SSRIs can, can confer changes to these microbes, um, you know, I think, you know, uh, things we drink that are severely acidic and so on, yeah. that, that can kill the microbes as well. But any probiotic that is that, that fits the definition should be relatively robust. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it has to be robust is our system is designed to kill microbes, right? And the reason for that is our body wants to protect us against floods of microbes coming through and have a certain criteria of selection. Right. Um, and so the selection criteria are this. So starting in the mouth, 
you make a lot of IgA, right? If you're healthy, you're making a lot of secretory IgA. These are immunoglobulins that are found in your saliva, right? So as you get exposed to microbes through food and water and so on, a lot of the microbes are neutralized by the IgA. So they move through the system in a neutral fashion. Um, and then in the stomach, it's called the gastric barrier because then the stomach acid kills the vast majority of microbes. Now, the ones that survive the stomach acid go into the small intestine where bile salts are being released and bile salts are very powerful antimicrobials, right? And so there's all of these gauntlets that a bacteria has to go through in order to actually enter into the ecosystem of the intestines in an alive fashion, <laughs> right? And so the vast majority of bacteria we get exposed to don't survive through that gauntlet. They're, they're mm. killed. Now, there's some benefit to the dead versions of the bacteria as well going in and upregulating the immune system to certain okay. degree, stoking certain metabolic pathways and so on. So there it's, so, you know, that's, that's all fine. That's how it's supposed to work. But what we were able to identify is that they're actually natural microbes that can survive through this whole thing. Right. And then that to me seemed very deliberate because nature intended these microbes to survive. Right. And, and nature gave the, these microbes very specialized capabilities to survive these really antimicrobial gauntlets that we, we have within our system. And so we started honing in on the environmental bacteria that can survive through the gastric system, right? Mm -hmm. And make it to the intestines alive. And that's where we came up with the spore, the uh, bacillus endospores. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, the bacillus endospores have been a prescription probiotic since 1952 in Europe yeah. and in Latin America and parts of Asia and yeah. so on in a product called Entrogermina. It's a prescription drug to treat dysentery and other gut infections and also chronic upper respiratory infection huh. since 1952. So these have already been in the marketplace. So we we work hard to uh, identify uh, the proper strains and, and you know study them and identify them. And then we, we started uh, formulating products with them and then doing clinical research to validate not only are they safe, but do they actually have a functionality in the body, you know? So to give people uh, a, a way of navigating through probiotics, uh, because like you mentioned, you walk into a store, there's, there's endless amounts on the shelf, right? And they're all competing against each other, 50 billion, 60 billion. How much do you want refrigerated stuff, non-refrigerated, right? So what is a true probiotic? The only way you will know if a probiotic is going to be effective is if there's a study on it, if there's research on the finished product, right? Yeah. So some companies, what they'll do is they'll get a couple of strains that have research on the individual strain, and then they'll put it into a formula and mix it with a bunch of other stuff and assume that it's going to work the same mm -hmm. in a mixture as it did by itself in mm -hmm. the study. There's a problem with that as well, because these are biological entities, right? Their functionality changes based on their environment. And so if this strain A by itself has certain efficacies, if you mix it with seven other things, it may not have the same efficacy, mm -hmm. right? So I can tell you with a high degree of certainty that 98 or 99% of the probiotics you encounter in the stores and online have not done a single study mm. on those probiotics, right? Yeah. So you want to look for products that that the companies loudly claim have studies. You know, you may not understand the studies, but at least hopefully you they, they share the studies and you can click on them or get your advice from practitioners, mm -hmm. you know, from from people like yourself who have the capacity and the capability of vetting products 
-hmm. looking at research and so on and and you know and can make the right recommendations right and yeah. so that's you know that's that's kind of what we favor because there's just too much nonsense out there for the average consumer to navigate yeah absolutely it's so interesting that you know there's so much out there there's so many bacteria i mean or so you guys are researching specific strands and those strands are very important and so it's all about not only are these strands good for you how much of it do you really need and do you really need all the other stuff that's with it? And so that's where a lot of the studies are going for. So for the for the average person out there, what it sounds like is you've got to get outside. You've got to be diversing your diet. You've got to have a better connection with nature. You've got to stop using a lot of these wild, like mega cleaners that are like making your kitchen like a surgery, like a like a ER. And then you've got to then turn into, if you need them, using research-backed, evidence-based bacteria and yep. that bacteria is what's going to be the biggest thing for you exactly yep you combine all those things yeah. together and you will make a profound difference yeah. in your overall outcomes and and uh the really cool thing about it is because the gut controls so many things you'll start seeing improvements in things that you didn't expect or you didn't think you needed improvements in right for example uh, all of a sudden you're you're sleeping better and, and food may taste different to you and your skin is improving mm -hmm. your energy levels are improving you know you're burning fat faster mm -hmm. uh you know your your recoveries from workouts are better mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things start to improve because the mm -hmm. gut controls all of these mechanisms in the body mm -hmm. right so you may be going for this with one thing in mind like i want to reduce my daily anxiety. I want yeah. to be able to sleep better, but you'll start to see all these auxiliary benefits yeah. as well, because when your gut is healthy, everything else works better. Man, that is so profound. What an amazing information. I know that like, we're just touching like the, the tip of the iceberg with it, but that is so interesting. And just how the, the brain is connected and these little bitty microorganisms are so important just to how you feel and live and, and interact with the entire world. That That is so interesting. One, one question I do have, I know that you are a very busy person and you've got a lot going on. Um, for a lot of people in the wellness industry, they're eating very clean, quote unquote, clean diets. And you'll see people who, when they deviate from that meal plan, they have a lot of upset stomach or they'll get very gassy or they have is where does like gut microbiome end and like food sensitivity begin? Or is it all the same thing? Yeah. So, um, you know, people always ask me, like, what is your health goal? Right. Yeah. And my health goal is and has always been to have resilience. Because I don't want to feel good and be healthy by having to make 100% the right choices, right? I want an 80-20 rule. I want to live. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to go out and have a beer and, ha and a hamburger with, with, with some friends yeah. and not feel like crap for the next three days, right? Uh. Um, I need that resilience. And the thing is, when you have a healthy microbiome, it provides you resilience. And so we have mistakenly in this in in functional medicine, integrative medicine, in in the health field that we both are are involved in, we have this notion of like eliminating all these things and and being very very clean and focused with your diet as a therapeutic, right? Um, it's not that that's a bad thing at all, but th that's a good thing. You want to clean up your diet. You want to eat really clean, but it also doesn't allow you to build resilience. Right, because resilience comes about from stressing the body in some way or yeah. the other, but having the systems in place mm -hmm. to deal with that stress. 
right? It's no different than exercise, right? We know that when you go to the gym and you lift and you work out, what you're actually doing is damaging your muscles, right? Mm -hmm. You're tearing them. And, and it's a stress response to, re, to rebuilding that damage is what gives you the fitness gains that you're looking mm -hmm. for, right? But if you're working out already damaged muscles, you're really not going to get any uh, any significant benefit. So the system has to be ready to deal with the stress. So what I tell people all the time is that um, you got to fix your gut, right? So get into a program to get your gut healthy, get your gut resilient, increase diversity. Once you've done that, then you need to stress your system a little bit. You know, yeah. um, you can't have, you shouldn't have to be perfect in all your choices in order to feel good. You should be able to have some deviations and be fine. Yeah. And that comes back to quality of life. It comes back to, you know, um, stress that it can cause people. You know, I have, I have friends that get stressed out just by going to a restaurant because, you know, they're going to give the waiter the third degree on like what all is touched this and that and the other. And, mm. you know, is there gluten in this? Is there gluten in that? And, you know, like everything. Right. And it's it, it, it impacts quality of life. It impacts it, the yeah. experiences that you're supposed to have socially with people. And so I'm all for people building the system, building the foundation and then living it, yeah. you know, living in it. Cause to me, if I have to make a hundred percent of the right choices and I'm not living. You know? Well, yeah, and absolutely. And you just want to be harder to kill. I mean, that's the whole goal of being exactly. a human, right? Be harder to kill, like be able to survive. And if I can get, taken out by a vegetable that's probably not very helpful to me you know like i'm going to be taken out so yeah. i think what i'm hearing in that is if, if your gut is upset even if you're super fit and super well and, you're, and you've done all these things and your diet's clean but you have that refeed on the weekends and you feel really sick there's there's a problem there mm -hmm. and don't go chasing it through eating even cleaner or don't go be looking at what else is wrong with my body start with the gut and move out rather than start with that other system and move in and I think that's what I'm going to take from this as a clinician as well, is that so many times I go straight to that other organ yeah. when the gut probably is one of the biggest, if not the main factor. And Perfect. so being able to attack it first and then build out in your treatment course, which is so important overall. Man, thank you so much. I think this is some really great information. I know everybody can take this. There's a lot to it. Digest it, literally, and be able to then take it and do something with it. Get outside get that nature experience, stop using those cleaners, get that probiotic and make yourself more resilient. Uh, one thing I always ask, uh, Dr. Corinne, what are you doing right now for your mental health? What's one thing you find to be the most beneficial for your mental health right now? Um, you know, for me, it's largely about uh, um, finding a way to, to, to build in some decompression into mm. my days, right? So yeah. my days are crazy busy. I travel almost every week. Um, and, and for example, the, the therapeutic component that I I've built into my head is because I, I, I work so much, and I have a lot of things going on. Uh, I used to use the time on, on my flights as work time, right? It's like, oh, it's uninterrupted work time. I hook up to the Wi-Fi. I'm doing emails, uh, this, that, and the other, but then I found over the last couple of years that mentally I'm in a much better place if I take that time as like me time to just watch a show on my, you know, on my iPad or read a book and just things that are not related to my work. Yeah. 
compression time, right? Um, and what that also affords me is a different perspective on having to go get on a plane again. You know, like tomorrow yeah. I'm flying to London, right? And it's a it's an eight and a half hour flight. And and normally people are like, oh God, I gotta go to London. I got this long flight. I'm kind of looking forward to it because I'm like, sweet, you know, I have like eight and a half hours to myself. I can catch yeah. up on some shows that I haven't yeah. watched, right? I can catch yeah. up on some reading I want to do that's yeah. just entertainment stuff. Um, so so that's what I've been doing. And, and that's how I formulated my decompression time because I have these flights that are happening every week. I think people really need to, to, to allow themselves to decompress and allow themselves to disconnect in a way, um, you know, especially very busy, engaged people, whether you're, you know, a, a, a mom or dad or a professional of some sort of kids and all of that stuff that's happening. I think it's an important thing for yeah. them to, to do that. So what I hear in that is decompress, mm -hmm. but decompress in something that you're doing regularly, not yeah. decompressing by doing something extra when you're yeah. so busy that you don't even have the time. Find that decompression in that everyday activity or weekly activity that allows you to have that peace. Yeah. I, I also do like another decompression thing that I found that really um, allows me to escape, right? And it's really just this decompression is a, is a uh, momentary escape, um, which allows a different brainwave function to kick in, right? So um, massage, I absolutely love massage, right? And um, I'll try to get every 15 days, 10 days, at least if I can schedule it, uh, you know, a good 90 minute massage, right? Like for me, a deep tissue massage is like, 90 minutes of escape and it and it increases yeah. oxytocin it reduces uh, cortisol it reduces epinephrine and norepinephrine um so it has all of these benefits so to find something that gives you a little bit of relaxation a little bit of joy um you know just or watching something funny allow yourself to laugh a little bit and don't feel guilty about it mm -hmm. right i know a lot of people that that feel like they have all these duties and all these things which they do mm -hmm but they feel guilty taking time for themselves and mm -hmm. just going, you know what, I got to shut out the world, whether it's an hour, two hours, four hours, whatever it may be, and just kind of, you know, relax and shift my brain waves a little bit. Um, you know, like my wife struggles with that, you know, because mm -hmm. she's got so many things going on all the time. Yeah, She feels guilty about just going, you know what, I just need to sit and relax, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's a powerful thing if you build it into your routine. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really great information and something that's important to get that skin to skin contact. You're getting that whole experience. You're decompressing, but then also not feeling the shame and guilt and continuing to use it as brain fuel rather than uh, something to continue to break yourself down with. Exactly. So important. Yeah. Awesome. Man, Dr. Christian, I don't, I, I mean, I'm just going to kind of sit and take this in. I think I'm going to go back and just probably listen to this again, just to try to take all the information. Thank you so much. Uh, the knowledge is incredible. Keep up the good work. And uh, man, we look to have you back soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm happy to come back. Always happy to share this information. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thank you so much, man.